Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I would like to discuss the poet Sappho. I don't know if you've heard of Sappho. She was born on the island of Lesbos. We don't know exactly when, but she's an ancient Greek, I think is what we would call her. And she was around about 620, 646, 60 BC. She was a massive legend. I know you read about Greek legends, but I mean legend that in the modern sense. She was the sort of ancient Greek Taylor Swift. There were statues of Sappho, there were vases with her poetry printed on them. There were coins with Sappho's face on. She was enormous, enormously successful poet. Her poems are short, personal, emotional, lyric poems. When I say personal, the speaker uses the word I, which apparently was a a new thing in ancient Greece. I don't know enough about it to absolutely bear that out but I take the words of several experts and so she sort of led the way it seems in from the heart poetry like I say it doesn't mean as I always say it is Sappho speaking but certainly she makes the speaker a intimate figure who is sharing quite often their emotions Now, I say that lyric poetry, which was her speciality, was often very short. With Sappho, it's even shorter because really the main stuff we've got from Sappho is fragments of her poetry. This was often quoted by uh, ancient writers who would use an example of Sappho's poetry to say, you know, Sappho said this brilliantly when she wrote. So we've got all those little extracts. But also we found, when I say we, I mean humanity, has found fragments of Sappho's poetry in what I believe is called cartonnage, which is stuff that the ancients used to, they used it as packing. They used it in things like sarcophagi and uh, when they were bolstering up their mummies. There is an extract of a uh, Sappho poem which was found as part of a crocodile mummification. So um, she's basically found now in packing. I know, it's incredible. So it's mainly fragments, as it's almost exclusively fragments, which means that you don't get the full context and you have to try and work out what's going on. But there is something amazing about a voice from the ancient world, someone born on the island of Lesbos somewhere around 620 BC, still speaking to us. And it might be like on a crackly old radio reception where she comes and she goes and we only get bits. But even so, it's fabulously exciting. I love... um, There's something exciting about fragments as a genre. I once heard two middle-aged women talking and one of them said, yes, but is it a suitable gift for a holy person? That's all I had of that conversation, but I sort of loved it. I, I've, I've framed it emotionally. Okay, I'm going to read you a bit of Sappho. 
And I should say, as a precursor to this, that two of the words, abanthis and gongila, are female names of the time, just so that is clear. Abanthis, please pick up your lyre. Praise Gongila. Your need to sing flutters about you in the air, you gorgeous thing. Wow. So, Abanthis, that is the woman being addressed. Please pick up your lyre, L-Y-R-E. And one thing we should say about Sappho is that she played the lyre as part of her... It's kind of like a harp thing as part of her poetry. It's a crucial element. She would have sung, to some extent, these poems, or at least accompanied them with this stringed instrument. And it is said, I think quite reliably, that she invented a lyre with more strings than the formal one, like someone invented the... 12-string guitar. And also, it seems, she invented the plectrum, that thing that you pick the strings with. I'm guessing that's to do with success in the way that George Formby, as he got bigger and bigger, George Formby, the ukulele player, had to switch from the little wooden ukulele to one with a banjo head. So it had a vellum front rather than a wooden one because that's much, much louder. And he was playing bigger places, and so he needed to be louder so they could hear him in a time of limited amplification. I suspect, and I've never read this anywhere, it's just the performer in me, that Sappho invented the plectrum to make it louder because she was so successful, she was doing bigger gigs. That's what I think. Abanthus, please pick up your lyre. I should say, and I will get through this eventually, there is another poem, just another extract, where she personifies the lyre. And I think you get a sense of how much the instrument means to her. It's a bit like, you know, if Eric Clapton was talking about what a guitar meant to him. This is a little bit of Sappho, just two lines, this extract. And it's actually addressing her lyre. God-crafted product of the tortoise shell. Come to me, lyre. Be voluble. I should say, by the way, that the translations I'm using are done by an academic called Aaron Puchigian. And um, I'm going to stick with his translations Let's listen to this again. God-crafted product of the tortoise shell. God-crafted, like God made my lyre. That, it has that kind of divine magic. That's why it sounds like it does. That's why I feel this relationship with it. That's why it has this grip on people. A God made it. Well, what do you mean? How did that work? Well, because it's made from a, a tortoise shell and they, there are ancient illustrations of people playing a lyre with a whole carapace, a whole tortoise shell as a sort of sound box. So God did make her lyre because he made 
the tortoise shell. Which god, we don't know at this point. Obviously, there were lots in ancient Greece. Come to me, liar. Be voluble. Now, that's the way that Puchigian translates that word. Voluble, talkative. It's an element of while my guitar gently weeps in this. You make your guitar a person and then it talks. It emanates beautiful and moving sounds. The personification thing is something you get here and there in these fragments of Sappho. When things are addressed as beings that you wouldn't normally expect to be addressed. For example, another extract. Maidenhead, maidenhead, where have you gone? I shall never ever join you again. Now we've got that poem because it was quoted, I think, in the first century by a writer called Demetrius. And Demetrius, who I'm guessing had a bit more context than we have now, says that the speaker is a bride. I'm guessing a bride the morning after the wedding night before. Maidenhead, maidenhead, where have you gone? Maidenhead meaning virginity, I suppose, literally the hymen which can be in danger on a wedding night or certainly in the old days. And if ever we were talking about the old days, this week is it. The theory is that Sappho performed at um, weddings. That was one of her... She has actually had like a wedding band and um, she would perform at weddings. I'm guessing... I don't know, perhaps not this. Maidenhead, Maidenhead, where have you gone? That is the voice of the bride. And then the voice of the actual hymen. I shall never, ever join you again. It's a terrible sort of sense of loss about that, about being incomplete in some way, about something having been taken Maybe it went down a storm at weddings, like um, like a sort of best man speech, kind of ribald remark. Maidenhead, maidenhead, where have you gone? I shall never, ever join you again. You are no longer complete, it seems to say, which is obviously, well, bittersweet would be an understatement, mainly just bitter, I think. There are lots of references to girls in Sappho's poetry. She was born in Lesbos, as I say, which makes her a lesbian, like if you were born in France, you're French. But the word lesbian has come to mean gay woman because of Sappho, because a lot of her poems, or the poems that we have, we have about, I should say, about 10% of her output is what we think, which is... A terrible loss, but, you know, it does emerge now and again. But because so much of it is about the love of young women, then lesbian has come to mean gay woman via Sappho. Obviously, you don't want to hear an old guy talking about this stuff, but I just mentioned that. I'm gonna, I haven't actually completed the poem I was reading. I think you want more Sappho and less me. That's my theory. This is the full... Extract. Abanthis, please pick up your lyre. Praise Gongila. Remember, that's another telling one young woman to praise another. 
Your need to sing flutters about you in the air, you gorgeous thing. So it seems the natural way to express love, to express attraction, is to sing, to pick up your lyre and to sing. That's how Sappho does it. It reminds me once when I was going away and my son, who was about four, said, how long are you going to be away? And I said, oh, like three nights, I'll miss you. And he said, oh, I'll do you a drawing. And then he drew himself and gave it to me. And it was so natural and instinctive in the child to help my missing him by just drawing something. That age when you're just drawing all the time, when art is, is just part of life. And I think that's how it was for Sappho and her associates, which I'll, I'll delve into the nature of their relationship. I mean, their sort of professional relationship in a mini. Abanthis, please pick up your lyre. Praise Gongila. Your need to sing flutters about you in the air, you gorgeous thing. So I love the way I can see in you that you just want to sing about this, this attraction. There's more. Her garment, this is um, Gongila. Her garment, Gongila, isn't present, um, you'll remember. Her garment, when you stole a glance, this is addressed to a Banthis, remember. Her garment, when you stole a glance, roused you, and I'm in ecstasy. Likewise, the goddess Kypris once disciplined me, blaming the way I prayed. Gone. That's the end of that fragment. We don't know where the speaker was going to go next with that. So, Abanthus, please pick up your lyre. Praise Gongula. I know you fancy her. Sing about it. Your need to sing flutters about you in the air. It's so obvious you need to sing a song about Gongula, you gorgeous thing. I love it that you are so excited about this other woman. Her garment, this is Gongula's garment, when you stole a glance, it's getting very sensual, roused you and I'm in ecstasy. So it seems the speaker is excited at seeing this attraction sparkling in front of her. Likewise, the goddess Kypris once disciplined me, blaming the way I prayed. There's several references to the gods and uh, goddesses, obviously, because in Greece it was absolutely the norm to talk about the gods as if they're constantly interfering in your everyday life. This is not so strange to me as a Roman Catholic, but maybe strange to many of our listeners. If you read Homer's Iliad, almost from the beginning... No battles take place without the gods directly getting involved and fixing the fight, as it were. So then she she says, yeah, sing the song about Gongila, because you obviously are really, when you saw you stole a glance at her garment, then I loved that. It reminded me, and then she starts to reminisce. And I think the feeling we always get is Sappho is a more is an older woman speaking to girls. Likewise, the goddess Kypris once disciplined me, blaming the way I prayed. Now, we can speculate on where that's going to go. It doesn't really get us anywhere. I, for me, 
I think as someone who does pray and gets distracted by all sorts of things, I think the goddess Cypris, Aphrodite as we tend to call her, Aphrodite, the god of physical love, of lust and beauty, once disciplined the speaker, blaming the way I prayed. And I'm guessing the speaker was praying to Aphrodite, to Cypris, and then saw something, maybe a, a, another attractive woman, and was distracted. And so the goddess told her off for not giving her her full focus. I know this is kind of crazy, all of this. I'm just tiny extracts from nearly a thousand years ago, but I love it. And I, I don't know if I said that thing about the liar that these things were played on the, the liar accompanied the poetry that's where the word lyric comes from from the word liar just in case you hadn't spotted it the gay thing about Sappho I mean you know there's a lot of um, almost every artist now has their um, sexuality scrutinized however far back they go but although when you just read it without any commentary without any critical backup it does feel like lots and lots of poems about how the speaker loves young women but apparently in ancient Greece when she was satirized Sappho which big stars so often are she was seen as a bit of a man-eater and it was um that was a story that she'd fallen for some guy and jumped off a cliff she was so madly in love with him but you can imagine a lot of these guys as time went on looking back on one of the superstar poets of ancient Greece being a woman probably wasn't that keen on the idea and a gay woman was just too much so I wonder if all that was a way of de-gaying her and making her a bit more acceptable to men I was talking about um, the girls that are spoken to and that the speaker seems to have some authority over them. There's sort of three theories about this, but let me just read you another extract. Fabulously enigmatic. As for you girls, the gorgeous ones, there will be no change in my plans. Man, wouldn't you just love to know what the speaker's plans were for the gorgeous ones? Um, or maybe not. If this was a male speaker who was older and talking about young girls, I think we'd all be distressed. But, you know, it's the ancient world and um, times were different. I think it's fair to say. So there are three theories, main theories, about the relationship between Sappho and her girls. I don't mean the sexual relationship. I mean, what was the balance of power? One is that Sappho was a school teacher, maybe of a sort of a finishing school, uh, getting girls ready for marriage. Remember, we have very few solid facts about Sappho. So... We listen to the theories of the experts, obviously, and take them on board as much as we can. But there is still 
some room, thank God, for our own intuitive interpretation based on what we gather from her poems, what she says to us. So if she was a school teacher at a finishing school getting girls ready for marriage, for example, this extract, Stand and face me, dear. Release that fineness in your irises. Stand and face me. It's that sort of thing when you used to see girls at finishing schools in uh, old black and white footage with about eight books on their head, teaching them to stand upright. Stand and face me, dear. Release that fineness in your irises. So look straight at me. Let me see your lovely eyes. That's part of the process of getting your man, if it's a man you're trying to get. Was she a religious leader? That's another theory, the head of a sort of cult or something of that nature. Cult being a less menacing thing in 640 BC than it is now. But I mean, the beginning of that poem I read earlier, likewise the goddess Kypris once disciplined me, blaming the way I prayed. It could be a religious teacher of some kind saying, I love the way you spotted that girl. Just sing and then and enjoy it. I'm not as strict as the goddess who uh, got upset when I got distracted at prayer. Anyway, that's one theory, the religious leader. And the third one, this is my favourite one, not because it's showbiz-based, but because it makes most sense to me from just reading the poems. And that is that the girls she addresses a lot are basically like a backing group, like Tina Turner and the Iquettes. So when she performs... Uh, these girls, and there is um, there is evidence that this was a genre of the time. They would sing and dance and maybe play the lyre as well. So they would be like a full-on backing group. I've, I don't know if you've ever seen the Iquettes. Absolute like epitome of raw sexuality on stage, but in, incredibly talented and brilliant. So why do I think that? Well, I'll tell you. For example, one of the extracts, what can this be other than the leader of a band addressing an audience? And this next charming ditty, I, in the honour of my girls, shall sing out prettily. I mean, that's just, and now, ladies and gentlemen, my next number. And more affection for the girls. There's another lovely You don't get much humility, obviously, in band leaders, but listen to this. By giving me creations of their own, my girls have handed me renown. So my reputation is partly based on the performance of my girls. They might have even had ideas for some of the poems by giving me creations of their own, their dance moves, whatever. She's seen it as as a group effort. So that's that's where I am with it. It's hard to go too deep into the actual words of these poems. I just want you to feel them because obviously they have gone through translation and so we can't get deep, deep, deep. But more of that in a second. Now, there was a new Sappho which was found, well, was certainly unveiled in 2004 
again from uh, Egyptian mommy Cartonage, and they fitted it with a fragment that they already had, which had been uh, found in uh, 1922. This is how it is with um, Sappho. It's like when someone tears up a love letter and casts it to the winds and then bits of it turn up. I'll read you some of that, some of what you might call a latest work in that we only found out about it recently. Girls chase the violet-bosomed muses' bright gifts and the plangent lyre, lover of hymns. So... Now she addresses her girls. Chase the violet-bosomed muses' bright gifts. So go for it with the poetry. The muses are said to inspire poets. They are sort of goddesses that help poets to create. So chase the violet-bosomed muses' bright gifts and the plangent lyre, lover of hymns. So plangent, sort of loud and clear, So girls, chase the violet-bosomed muses' bright gifts. Listen to the muses. Feel their inspiration. The loud, clear lyre, let that be your friend. It's a lover of hymns. It's perfect for uh, the religious songs that we do. Now, there's a switch after that initial address to her backing group. Stiffness has seized on these once supple limbs and black braids with the passing years turned white. So the speaker's getting older. Age weighs heavily on me and the knees buckle that long ago like fawns pranced nimbly. So now it's more poignant. It's an older woman talking to these young girls telling them to enjoy their youth and all the opportunities of music and religion and performance. I groan much, but to what end? Humans simply cannot be ageless like divinities. So I groan much. I think that's a reference to the poem itself. I groan much. This is me groaning now, complaining bemoaning my age i grow much but to one end humans simply cannot be ageless like divinities again the gods always there always happily referred to before i go i just want to talk a bit about translation because i have done translated poems before but i know the temptation to think are we not really hearing sappho are we we're hearing aaron Puchigian and what he thinks but he is just a uh, he's a mouthpiece for this woman speaking to us from 640 BC and I find that exciting and let me just read you another one well it might not be the last you know what I'm like but let me read uh, let me just read this and I'm going to go through this quite quickly and this is Puchigian's translation of um, one of the better known and anthologised Sappho poems. This one's a bit longer. That fellow strikes me as God's double. So 
straight in that guy over there strikes me as God's double. He looks like a god. So this is a woman watching another woman she clearly feels strongly about talking to some super handsome hot guy. That fellow strikes me as God's double couched with you face to face. So on a couch with you, delighting in your warm manner, your amiable talk and inviting laughter. I should say that this, I think, is this particular extract is closer to what they would call the sapphic meter. I think and I would have to read it in the original Greek to really illustrate this. But sapphic meter is the idea that Sappho wrote in stanzas of four lines, the last line of which was always short, shorter than the other lines, which gives it a sort of a poignancy. It gives it, it's a bit like having a haiku, those very short Japanese poems, at the end of each stanza. And it just makes you, I think, think a bit more about those lines. That fellow strikes me as God's double. Couch with you face to face, delighting in your warm manner, your amiable talk and inviting. There it's sort of going on, so it doesn't work as obviously, but stick with me. Your amiable talk and inviting is that last short line. Laughter, we're into the next stanza. The revelation flutters my ventricles, my sternum and stomach. The least glimpse and my lost voice stutters, refuses to come back. So I am so jealous at this guy sitting on the couch face to face with you, listening to you talk. The revelation, seeing it, flutters my ventricles, my sternum and stomach. Incredible physical response to jealousy the least glimpse i can't even look at it the least glimpse of my lost voice stutters refuses to come back i can't speak i'm so jealous because my tongue is shattered refuses to come back is that last line gauzy flame gauzy as in thin and wispy gauzy flame runs radiating under my skin all that i see is hazy she's going dizzy now my ears all thunder. That's the short line. My ears all thunder. I can't hear. You know that thing when you're in a terrible state and your hearing seems to become echoey and strange. Sweat comes quickly and a shiver vibrates my frame. I am more sallow than grass and suffer such a fever as death should follow. I've seen that translated um, elsewhere as I am greener than grass. She's sick. Suffer such a fever as death should follow. And that's that short line, as death should follow. It's killing her. But I must suffer further worthless as I am. And then we've gone. We've lost it. That moment where you're loving it and then it disappears. And... The translator Aaron Puchigian says, I don't think I've said his name the same way twice, but, you know, I'm doing my best. He talks about the difficulty of translation and defends the fact that here he writes, um, my ventricles, my sternum and stomach. 
Most translators say my heart, but Puchigian, I think quite rightly, says heart as such a sort of sentimental meaning in the modern West that he uses ventricles because he wants to get across the physicality of the original poem by Sappho. She is saying that this is in my gut. This is not a mental thing. It's physical. I've got proper physical symptoms. I'm just going to read you a little bit of a couple of other translations just to give you an idea of the sort of difference. I still feel we are reaching Sappho, but we're reaching her obviously via these modern voices. So Edward Storer, if you remember just that first bit when uh, Puchigian says, um, that fellow strikes me as God's double couch with you face to face, delighting in your warm manner, your amiable talk and inviting laughter. The revelation flutters my ventricles, my sternum and stomach, the least glimpse and my lost voice stutters, refuses to come back. In Edward Storer, you get, he seems like a god to me, the man who is near you, listening to your sweet voice and exquisite laughter that makes my heart so wildly beat in my breast. Very different, isn't it, from my ventricles, my sternum and stomach. Makes my heart so wildly beat in my breast. If I but see you for a moment, then all my words leave me. My tongue is broken. And then another translation just to round off, by Diane J. Rayor. He seems to me an equal of the gods, whoever gets to sit across from you and listen to the sound of your sweet speech so close to him, to your beguiling laughter. Oh, it makes my panicked heart go fluttering in my chest. For the moment I catch sight of you, there's no speech left in me. So, you see they are different poems, but I think the core of what Sappho is saying is still there. We're still hearing her speak to us across the ages. There are many more extracts, many more bigger poems, not many more bigger poems, but there's a bit more Sappho around. I'd love you to investigate it. Oh, man, I'd love to know more about it, and I'd love to know more of her work. I just want to read you one last short epitaph, which seems very apt to me in the light of all this, in the light of that tiny flicker of Sappho's genius coming through the gloom of centuries Something actually I find very moving about this, but I'm going to read it to you. I declare that later on, even in an age unlike our own, someone will remember who we are. I think she got that right. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.